I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I'd like to focus our attention on some of the errors that began to develop in Christian worship in the late medieval period, errors that the Reformers identified and sought to reform in the 16th and 17th centuries. But first, I want to remind you that I have two books coming out this month. One has already come out, Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship, published by Free Grace Press. I encourage you to go to their website or to Amazon.com and purchase the book either in print or on Kindle. The other book that's coming out is Changed from Glory into Glory, The Liturgical Story of the Christian Faith, coming out with Joshua Press in just a week or so. In this book, I trace the development of worship from the Old Testament all the way through the present, focusing attention on how worship influences theology and theology influences worship. This is the subject that I'd like to focus our attention on in this episode, specifically focusing our attention on the late Middle Ages. Much of the development of worship during the Middle Ages was rooted in biblical prescription, example, and theology. Protestant Christians looking back at this period recognized the errors and heterodoxy that developed within Roman Catholicism during the Middle Ages. Yet what must be remembered is that the church did not formally codify or unify around what Protestants considered error until the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent in the 16th century. And so it's a mixed bag during the Middle Ages. And even as erroneous doctrine and practices emerged from the 4th through 16th centuries, a core Christianity shaped medieval Western civilization. This certainly does not mean that all or even most people were genuinely Christian or free from immoral living, quite the opposite. But because of the dominance of Christendom, medieval man affirmed the existence of a God who is both transcendent and personal, believed that this God created and rules the universe, understood that humans were sinful and in need of forgiveness, recognized that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who became incarnate and died to save humanity, and simply came to assume that religion and faith were necessary to human flourishing. These core beliefs produced a social order and culture that was essentially Christian, not in the sense of genuine piety, but in the sense of being governed by Christian categories as opposed to pagan or secular. Nevertheless, heresy did grow, and several aspects of how many Christians worshipped by the end of the 15th century made significant reformation necessary. Although the specific dogmas we associate with Roman Catholicism today were not officially canonized until the Council of Trent, which met from 1554 to 1563, Many of the Roman Church's heresy was already developed by the early 1500s. For example, the doctrine of purgatory came in 593, prayer to Mary, saints, and angels in 600, kissing the Pope's foot in 709, the canonization of dead saints in 995, the celibacy of the priesthood in 1079, the rosary in 1090, transubstantiation and confessing sins to a priest in 1215, and the seven sacraments in 1439. Problems specifically with worship can be summarized with the following categories. Number one, the sacrificial character of the Eucharist. Very early in the development of Eucharistic practice, 
Christians referred to the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice or oblation. While it's likely that the earliest Christians meant this metaphorically, by the end of the Middle Ages, most Christians considered partaking of the bread and cup to be a re-sacrificing of Christ. This particular theological error led to several other abuses, which leads to the second, and that is transubstantiation. One of the most significant of these abuses was the belief that the bread and wine in the Eucharist were literally the body and blood of Christ. Very early on in the development of Christian dogma, participation in the Lord's table in particular became significant. It's easy to understand why, since this is what made Christians unique from Jews worshiping in the synagogue. For example, Ignatius of Antioch called the table the medicine of immortality. It was understandable that they placed such an emphasis on the table, but they also struggled with a particular statement Christ made during his words of institution. Jesus had said, This bread is my body, and this cup is my blood. Of course, the Protestant reformers would debate this later, but early on, most Christian leaders took the statement very literally. Ignatius claimed that the Eucharist is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Irenaeus, a pastor in the late 2nd century, said, quote, The bread, when it receives the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist consisting of two realities, the earthly and the heavenly. Likewise, Origen, a 3rd century pastor, claimed, quote, And this bread becomes by prayer a sacred body which sanctifies those who sincerely partake of it, unquote. What those earliest Christians meant is a matter of considerable debate. However, a clearer mystical belief concerning the Eucharist developed in various places during the Middle Ages, first described as transubstantiation in the 10th century. The 1215 Fourth Lateran Council dogmatized this doctrine. They said, quote, the body and blood of Christ are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine, the bread being transubstantiated into the body and the wine into the blood by divine power, unquote. A short time later, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century devised the philosophical rationale for transubstantiation. Aquinas attempted to synthesize Aristotelian philosophy with Christian theology, and this is perhaps no more evident than in his theology of the Eucharist. His doctrine sought to explain how the bread and the wine could literally be the body and blood of Christ, while still looking and tasting like bread and wine. Aquinas used Aristotle's categories of substance and accident to provide a solution. Substance was the very essence of a thing, while accidents were a thing's outward, tangible characteristics. Aquinas argued that when a priest uttered the words, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body, the substance of the bread transformed into the body of Christ while its accidents remained unchanged. The same happened with the wine. From the moment of consecration onward, the wafer and wine, separately or together, are the Lamb of God, to be adored and received for eternal life. Partaking of the Eucharist results in forgiveness from venial sins, strengthening against temptation, extinguishing the power of evil desire, 
and promise of eternal glory and glorious resurrection. Vatican II later encouraged frequent or daily participation since it, quote, increases our union with Christ, nourishes the spiritual life more abundantly, strengthens the soul in virtue, and gives the communicant a stronger pledge of eternal happiness. Another abuse was sacramentalism, attributing the efficacy of an act of worship, especially the Eucharistic elements, to the outward sign rather than to the inward working of the Holy Spirit. Christians during this period came to believe that just by performing the acts of worship, they received grace from God, whether or not they were spiritually engaged in the act. Along with this belief came the idea of ex opera operato, which means from the work worked. This belief taught that the acts of worship work automatically and independently of the faith of the recipient. Medieval worship also developed the error of sacerdotalism, the belief in the necessity of a human priest to approach God on behalf of others. As a result of the drastic increase of church attendance in the 4th century, a strict distinction between clergy and laity had developed wherein the clergy did not trust the illiterate, uneducated masses to worship God appropriately on their own. And so the clergy offered what they considered perfected worship on behalf of the people. The pronouncement by the Council of Laodicea in 363 illustrates this. The council says, quote, no others shall sing in the church save only the canonical singers who go up into the ambo and sing from a book. While this was a local council, it illustrated what became common among most churches in the Middle Ages. The quality of worship became measured by the excellence of the music and the aesthetic beauty of the liturgy. And while this facilitated the production of some quite beautiful sacred music during the period, it resulted in worship becoming mostly what the priests did in the chancel, which eventually was often distinctly separated from the nave by high rails or even a screen. This clergy-laity separation was only exacerbated by the continued use of Latin as the liturgical language, despite the fact that increasing numbers of people didn't even understand the language. By the end of the 14th century, members of the congregation rarely participated in the Lord's Supper, and even when they did, the cup was withheld from them, lest some of Christ's blood sprinkle on the unclean. Roman worship had moved from the work of the people, which is what the word liturgia means, to the work of the clergy. As even Roman Catholic liturgical scholar Joseph Jungmann notes, quote, the people were devout and came to worship, but even when they were present at worship, it was still clerical worship. The people were not much more than spectators. This resulted largely from the strangeness of the language which was and remained Latin. The people had become dumb. Unquote. Medieval Christians likewise became enamored with sensory experience in worship. Church architecture deliberately kept the nave dark and the elevated chancel bright and included ornate, elaborate decorations. Liturgy included rich vestments, processions, and other elaborate ceremonies that included bells and incense in order to create a mystical experience. All of this resulted in an individualization of piety. 
The only real benefit of corporate worship was the sacramental experience achieved by a sacerdotal system and the splendor of the corporate setting. The service of the word diminished, and the service of the table became a mystical sacrament by which worshipers were infused with grace as they observed the clergy offering a sacrifice on their behalf. Herman Wegman diagnoses the problem when he says, The decline in medieval worship must first of all be laid to clericalization and the related individualization of the piety of the faithful, a piety that grew apart from the liturgy. This liturgy was marked by an excess of feasts, by popular customs, and by details and superstitious practices that overlaid the heart of the faith. So where did these things come from? While many factors account for the rise of heretical and erroneous theology and practice, including worship during the Middle Ages, but perhaps one central factor is that in many cases, church leadership derived worship theology and practice primarily or even exclusively from Old Testament Israel, an empire that essentially consisted of a union between the civil and religious found more support and guidelines from the Old Testament than from the New Testament. So, the Old Testament increasingly became the pattern for medieval worship theology and practice, the church becoming the new Israel in that sense. For example, early theologians explicitly explained the ecclesial hierarchy based on its parallels with Old Testament high priest, which was the bishops, priesthood, which was the priests, and Levites, which were the deacons. Theologians used the Old Testament as the basis for priestly vestments, mandatory tithing, infant baptism, altars, sacrifice, richly adorned sanctuary, incense, processions, and ceremonies. As early as the 3rd century, for example, Tertullian described standing, quote, at God's altar for the participation of the sacrifice, and he said, We ought to escort with the pomp of good works amid psalms and hymns unto God's altar to obtain for us all good things from God, unquote. Whether he meant this in the New Testament metaphorical sense is debatable, but this kind of language unquestionably became more literal in later worship practice. Priority given to the Old Testament for worship theology also accounts for the sacramentalism, sacerdotalism, and preoccupation with sensory experience that came to characterize worship by the end of the 15th century. Christians desired, to quote Hebrews 12, a worship that can be touched, led by human mediators. But a second factor contributing to errant theology and practice of worship was that some theologians, rightly understanding that Christian worship is participation with the worship of heaven, as Hebrews 12.22 says, nevertheless failed to recognize that this is currently something to be accepted in faith as a spiritual reality rather than expected as a physical experience. Medieval Christians wanted to experience the worship of heaven tangibly here on earth, either expecting that heaven came down to them while they worshipped, or that they were led into the heavenly temple through the sacramental ceremonies. So, if not bringing into worship altars and incense and adornments by appealing to Old Testament Israel, some drew from pictures of heavenly worship especially those from the book of Revelation. 
Even the church architecture pictured this theology, with the nave where the people sat, symbolizing earth, the sanctuary where the mass took place, a picture of heaven. In this way, again, they desired a worship that can be touched. So, by the end of the Middle Ages, worship, along with many other aspects of Christian theology, was in desperate need of reformation. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org, and for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.